A man named Eugene Scheffelin loved Shakespeare so much that starting in 1890, he took a hundred starlings, which is a small bird native to Europe, and he released them in Central Park over the course of two years. Now, Shakespeare had mentioned the starling in his work, Henry VI. So for Eugene, this was a way of celebrating his love of that masterpiece. What he could not have known was that this small bird would proliferate so much that it would make it hard for native birds like woodpeckers and bluebirds and owls to thrive. Starlings spread disease, destroy crops, and have been implicated in deadly plane crashes. It's estimated that the millions of starlings in the U.S. are nearly all direct descendants of this original flock of 100 birds. That's probably not what Eugene had in mind over a hundred years ago, but sometimes our actions have unintended consequences, and that's what we're going to talk about today on this episode of By the Verse. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of By the Verse. This is a podcast that is all about the Word of God. We just take it in chunks and we go through it bit by bit and see what we can glean there. So if you have been listening on this season, hey, congratulations to you because I know we've been powering through uh, this book so far. It's been a little bit of a slugfest for us, but we've been making it all the way through. So thank you so much for walking with me through some of these meaty chapters. Well, the last time on our show, we uh, finished up with Gideon and all the good that he had done for Israel. This week, we're going to deal with the fallout of Gideon's decisions and some of his attitudes in the latter part of his life. Chapter 9 really is the unintended consequence of Gideon's attitude and lifestyle, some of which we see in, uh, we saw in part of our story uh, that we read last week, uh, but I want to pick it up kind of at the end of chapter 8, after he's won his victories and all of that, at the end of chapter 8, starting at verse 29. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Sechem, also bore him a son, and he called him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Orphrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So this is just a summation of uh, the last part of Gideon's life. As we read last week on our episode, uh, you know, we talked about some of this, and so we're not going to go into great detail here, uh, but it bears repeating that Gideon's behavior after his victory, after trusting God, after growing uh, out of his fear, honestly had some pretty devastating consequences for his family and for the nation. He had turned down the offer to officially become the king of Israel, and yet we see him living his life 
as if he were a king. I mean, he had 70 sons and many wives. Of course, he had to have daughters in there too. There's no way he had 70 straight sons. Okay, so this is an enormous family. I mean, can you imagine the financial support uh, that it would have taken for him to adequately take care of his family? And on top of all of the many wives and sons, he had an illegitimate son that he named Abimelech, which is a name that means my father, a king. How ironic. Now, in the verses just before this in chapter 8, Gideon had made a golden ephod, which was a religious garment that was most likely used to seek guidance and make decisions. And not only did Gideon's household, but the whole nation hoard after uh, this. It became somewhat of an idol for the people, and that's according uh, to the writer. So that's his language, not mine, okay? So it's no wonder that after Gideon died, uh, the people pretty much made haste. It says as soon as Gideon died, uh, they began to worship Baal, okay? This is interesting because even though Gideon had accomplished a great victory, the 40 years of rest that the land had, well, it was military rest, it was economic rest, but it obviously wasn't spiritual rest, because even in the life of Gideon, he, he's really the first judge where in his lifetime, uh, people begin to worship wrongly. So as soon as he dies, uh, now he's fully out of the way and the people can go after the thing they've probably wanted all along, which was to make Belbereth their God. And Belbereth means God of the covenant. So this was more than paying homage to the local God. Uh, it was more than just worshiping it occasionally or tolerating it in the land. This was full-on wholehearted commitment to abandon Yahweh and worship this version of Baal. So chapter 8 ends by saying that the people did not show love to Gideon's family, and chapter 9 shows us that they didn't show love to Gideon's family, because how this is going to play out is going to show that they didn't love him or revere him perhaps the way that they should have. So chapter 9, verse 1, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Sechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Sechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Sechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver of the house of Belbereth with with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Orphrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself, and all the leaders of Sechem came together at Beth Milo, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Sechem. Now Abimelech, who like we've said, is the illegitimate son of Gideon, would have been raised with his mother's family. He would not have been raised with his father's family because he was the daughter of a concubine, okay? And so he would have primarily identified uh, with the people of Sechem. They're his uh, relatives. This story is primarily going to happen in and around Sechem, 
and it doesn't really involve so much, at least not directly, the other tribes of Israel. So it may seem kind of isolated, uh, but Sechem is a pretty significant place in the history of Israel already at this point. This is where Abraham first received the promise of the promised land in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Also in that chapter, he built an altar to Yahweh, and this is really the first uh, altar that is built to him in the promised land. When the people left Egypt and they took Joseph's body with them, they buried Joseph in Sechem. That's according to Joshua 24. Uh, Sechem is also the place uh, where the people renew their covenant with God. They did that on many occasions, but Sechem is one of those places in, also in Joshua chapter 24. And when Joshua divided up the land, Sechem was the place of Levitical refuge. It was one of uh, many cities where people could go if they had killed someone. Maybe it was accidental. Maybe it was in the heat of the moment. And they could go to one of these cities of refuge while the priest would do an investigation. And basically, as long as they were in one of these cities, they were safe from the family of whoever had been killed because they would have wanted to take uh, revenge on that person. So this was, uh, Sechem was one of these cities of refuge. So everything that happens in in Judges chapter 9 is counter to the history and significance of this place. In a sense, Sechem is kind of uh, a spiritual barometer. It, It kind of measures the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. So what happens here maybe is not necessarily uh, involving all of the tribes, but it does represent them in some way, kind of their condition. Now, if you know anything about blended families, you know that it takes a great deal of concerted effort and time to take a blended family and form it into one new uh, cohesive family unit. I've even heard that it can take up to seven years for a blended family, for all the members of that family to stop seeing themselves uh, separately in their, uh, their family units, but to become one cohesive family unit. Of course, that's under good circumstances, okay? And under normal circumstances, you can have sibling rivalry, Well, imagine what it was like for Abimelech, who was illegitimate. That's already a mark against him. He wasn't raised with his uh, brothers, so he didn't have the same kind of uh, relationship that he might have with people that he lived with or was in the same household with. And because he is illegitimate, uh, he wasn't due to inherit anything uh, that was his father's, and obviously his father was a very wealthy man to have supported all of those people. So upon his father's death, he seized an opportunity. He went to his mother's side of the family and uh, convinced them to talk to the leaders of Sechem uh, so that he could be the king over them. And maybe he smelt the blood in the water. You know, maybe there was already uh, some rumblings. Maybe he knew that eventually somebody would uh, come out on top. And so he wanted to make sure that it was him. And so his family agrees to this and they go uh, to uh, the leaders of Sechem and they convince them uh, of this scheme. And so what they do is they go and they take blood money, really. Uh, They take money that had been offered to Baal and they give it to, to uh, Abimelech, and with it, he hires what the Bible calls worthless and reckless people. I mean, can you imagine this? A bloodthirsty leader 
uh, with a bunch of just worthless guys uh, following him. And they go, and they do really the unthinkable. Uh, They kill all the potential rivals uh, that Abimelech could have, all of his brothers uh, on a stone. Now, consider this. Gideon killed his countrymen because they wouldn't feed his army. We read that in chapter 8. Abimelech took it a step further and killed his own brothers because, well, they might rival him one day. Gideon said that only God should be king over the people, and yet he proceeded to live like he was a king anyway. Abimelech had no right to rule, no divine call, and yet he took the mantle of leadership upon himself. Abimelech's existence and attitude are the result of a door his father opened. Generations often respond to each other. They either reverse the excesses of the previous generation, or they take it a step further. So after he killed all his brothers, one of them had escaped, and then the leaders of Sechem, they make Abimelech their king by this tree. Now, I've already mentioned the significance uh, of the city, okay, but this particular place by this tree is Uh, particularly ironic and maybe even intentionally irreverent. And that's because Joshua 24 verse 26 says, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took took, uh, a large stone and he set it up under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Basically, this tree is the same tree. This place is probably the same place where the law of God had been buried. So where the law of God is buried and this memorial stone is there, these people go and they appoint their own king to a role that God has not even ordained for his people at this point. So the people call him king, but nowhere does God call him king. In fact, God is pretty much silent all throughout this chapter. All the other leaders so far in this book up to this point have been raised up by God, but Abimelech is no judge. He's a renegade, and he represents the rebellious, wayward, irreverent heart of the people. See, apart from grace, God often gives us the leaders that we deserve. And that's exactly what happens here. Let's read on in verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he was the brother who had escaped, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Sechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness, my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, 
If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubabel and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Sechem, because he is your relative. If you have then acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Sechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Beth Milo, from Sechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So the only brother who escapes is basically used by God to prophesy. That's really what this is. Now, people will call it the curse of uh, Jotham, but this is really a prophecy that's going to uh, come to pass. Okay, And so we don't hear God speaking directly, but God is really speaking through this uh, Jotham, and Jotham shares a parable. And this parable is ridiculous. It's meant to be ridiculous. Uh, it's ridiculous in the first sense uh, because the, when the people were looking for uh, a leader, they went to an olive tree, a fig tree, and a vine. Now, these were all beneficial uh, crops that the people grew. Uh, you can easily see the benefit of uh, olive trees and vines and, and fig trees. Uh, but as the people kept going down the line and kept getting denied and denied and denied, they come to a bramble because the bramble will actually say yes. A bramble is a thorn bush. A bramble has no value whatsoever. It was considered a nuisance. The irony is that the bramble only grew about two feet tall. So its promise of offering shade, well, I mean, it's flat out ridiculous. Likewise, it was notorious for catching fire and spreading that fire to crops that were useful. So this parable is meant to show just how ridiculous it is that these people think that they can take money from uh, the house of an idol and they could hire this, this guy who is an illegitimate uh, child who has no right to rule whatsoever and think that he's actually going to give them shade. No, this is going to backfire and everybody is going to get burned. Let's pick it up at verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Sechem, and the leaders of Sechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubabel might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Sechem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. So after uh, Jotham goes and hides himself, Everything was fine for three years. There's no sense of any problems for three years. It's only after that that problems began to emerge, and it was at the hand of God. God's been totally absent and silent in this chapter up to this 
point. But here at verse 23, we start to see the hand of God, that God sent uh, an evil spirit. And some people will say, well, that's unfair. Why would God uh, send an evil spirit? Well, really, God just allows you to be agitated by the things you want already. I mean, they're already worshiping an evil spirit. They, they've already been financed by an evil spirit. God's just letting things take their the, the course that they're going to take. And so God kind of helps instigate uh, this and move things along because, well, he was always going to avenge the deaths of Gideon's sons. The problem for us, though, is that it took three years. I'm sure that was a problem uh, for Jotham. I mean, how long did he sit around thinking, okay, God, okay, okay, when is this going to happen? Okay, I'm pretty sure I spoke this uh, with with real inspiration here. Okay, God, when are you going to avenge my brothers? And it took three years. And in that three years, it could have been that the people of Sechem and Abimelech himself pretty much blew off what Jotham said. But here's the thing. God hadn't forgotten. Sometimes God warns us that we've gone down the wrong path or we're going down the wrong path. And just because punishment doesn't come immediately doesn't mean that God has turned a blind eye to what we've done and what we've been doing. Sometimes God is very gracious in that He gives us time for repentance. But if we carry on and we do not repent, well, then the punishment does fall on us, and that's exactly what happens here. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter uh, because, or I'm not going to read all of the rest of the chapter because things go downhill uh, pretty fast. You can read it very easily. The men of Sechem uh, probably get agitated with Abimelech. He's probably not a very good leader to be under, and they start to do underhanded things. They start to act out behind his back, and eventually a guy named Gal, uh, a Gaul, he moves to Sechem, and he's a loudmouth guy. And one day when they're feasting and drinking, he's probably had a few too many, and he starts talking trash. Uh, about Abimelech. We probably know people uh, who are like that. He's getting loud and he's saying, you know, if I were ruling over you, uh, you know, it wouldn't be like this. I'd do something about this Abimelech guy. Well, Zubal is the leader uh, over the people of Sechem, and he's probably been installed there uh, by Abimelech because he doesn't seem to be a part of uh, the, the natural born leaders there. He seems to be Abimelech's leader. Uh, in that area. So he sends word to Abimelech and he says, listen, this is what's going on. You need to come and handle uh, your business. And here's where we pick it up in verse 44. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sold it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Sechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Sechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zelman, and he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry, do 
as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, uh, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Sechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Okay, so after uh, Abimelech deals with uh, Gaul and pretty much uh, takes over his people and runs him out of town, he sets his sight on the city as a whole. He takes it and uh, he pretty much destroys uh, the city. Now, this is, of course, is the fulfillment of the first part of what Jotham, his brother, had spoken. Not only did Abimelech take the city, but he, he literally burned it. He burned the tower. I mean, literally, fire, fire came out from the bramble and burned up this tower. He destroyed the city. He poured salt all over the fields, which kept them, uh, the people who were uh, survivors, he kept them from producing any more crops, at least for a long time. But here's the thing about people like Abimelech. Uh, they don't know when to stop. His anger and impetulance got the best of him, and this is what we see in verse 50. This is where we pick it up. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Sechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Okay, so because... Uh, he didn't know when to stop. He went on a rampage. I mean, we hadn't heard anything about Thibes uh, in this story up to this point, but maybe they had some kind of beef too. And so he just kept going. He just couldn't stop. And he thought, you know what? They have a tower. All the people are hiding in a tower. So I'll just use the same tactic that I used against the tower at Sechem. But this time, a woman threw an upper millstone out a window and it fell on his head. Now, this upper millstone would have been a small stone that they would have used to grind uh, grain, okay? Um, she throws it out the window. It falls right on his head, crushes his skull. It's a, it's a fatal blow. I mean, he's going to die uh, from this wound, and so he wants his ar- armor bearer to uh, basically take his sword and kill him so that they can say, well, the armor bearer did it. But listen, everybody knows this woman killed him. This woman took him out, and it's interesting that God used a stone to take this guy out, just like he used a stone to take his brothers out. And so what's the takeaway from this chapter? Well, the best leadership we can get is the leadership that God places us under. And sometimes people run from place to place to be under a certain leader. Or would-be leaders run from situation to situation to try to get to the top in leadership? The best situation for the leader 
and the people is when God elevates the person to lead and the people commit to the person God anointed to be over them. Well, that's all I have for you today on this episode of By the Verse. I can't wait to walk with chapter 10 with you. Yes, we are getting there. We are making some progress here. And we will talk about chapter 10 on the next episode of By the Verse. 